This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. In April 1935, Judge William Pearson and his wife, Lena, were lying on tables just above the cold marble floor. They were once an esteemed couple in Austin, Texas, the guests of politicians, entertainers, and kingmakers. But now, they were widely known as murder victims. Lena and Will had gained more attention in just a few days than either of them had experienced in their entire lives. The Pearsons were lying in state at the Texas Supreme Court building inside the Capitol. It's an honor specifically reserved for the state's most important figures, including state Supreme Court judges and their spouses. Thousands of people filed past them, staring at the caskets. It took a full day and a half for each of the mourners to get their turn. For decades, the government had held the event that allowed Texans to pay their respects to revered and powerful figures. But this seemed pretty extraordinary. Defense attorney David Shepard is not surprised about the incredible amount of attention in this case because it's such an unusual story. I can't imagine the amount of public interest and kind of the psychological impact that would have on the people of, of the state. It would be huge. And, you know, and for judges to be murdered by in any situation is so extraordinarily rare in this state. Author Gary Laverne agrees. But he also says that all of this media attention attracted a more unpleasant crowd. Thousands of gawkers who just wanted to stare at the caskets of two murder victims. They had responded to the huge amount of media attention that the case had attracted. Well, remember that Austin is still a rather small town, but the Pearson's uh, story made national news. Newspaper reporters from around the country covered the event at the Supreme Court, and then they covered the funeral. An interesting side note, the lurid story also attracted the attention of a cub writer for the university's student newspaper. One of the first stories covered by the Daily Texan on the University of Texas campus was this story back in 1935, and the correspondent for the Daily Texan was a student named Walter Cronkite. The headline read, Judge Pearson and Wife Shot to Death. Cronkite wrote, Their son, Howard, an eyewitness to the shooting, suffered a flesh wound inflicted by a bullet which penetrated his left arm. At the funeral, former Texas Governor Pat Neff paid tribute to the judge. The guest list featured some of the state's most powerful politicians. The Reverend said this about William Pearson. For a generation, Judge Pearson walked in the light of publicity. But that white light did not reveal one tarnished jewel in the resplendent crown of his judicial career, nor one fallen leaf in the laurel of his private life. That was high praise. So the judge's life seemed exemplary. But no one at the service mentioned the reason behind the deaths. Their youngest son, Howard, wasn't at the Capitol building or at the funeral, with good reason. Austin police suspected him in the murder of his parents. And besides, investigators said, Howard had never requested to attend. They would have allowed it. He could have been shackled, but he preferred to stay in his jail cell. When Howard's siblings did arrive in Austin for the services, Alice and Bill sat down with investigators. 
They could not believe that he was a suspect. They cried and consoled each other. Investigators asked about Howard, what was life like with him? And as they sat near each other, Bill and Alice offered details about their brother's troubled relationship with their parents. The siblings both agreed that after they left home to start their lives, Howard had a tough time. Bill said that Howard had always been painfully shy, even as a boy. He was socially awkward. He seemed to have no social graces at all, which has always been particularly important in a state like Texas. Many people described Howard as a sad, lonely little boy who had few friends. And that's still the impression of so many people in his family today. Gray Pearson's father met Howard when both were young. His interactions had been fleeting, but memorable. Um, My father mentioned that when he had met Howard at one or more family events or family reunions, that Howard was just strange. He was just just weird. In what way? Um, apparently standoffish uh, and just non-social, non-sociable. Um, you'd have to have known my father to appreciate just how much it means because my father could be friends with anybody. What, what was your dad saying, I mean, all about all of this? What did he say about Howard? I mean, he just thought Howard had a, had a mental problem. He never condemned Howard as being an evil person. He just said, you know, Howard wasn't right. Howard never really seemed to fit in anywhere, unfortunately. When the Pearsons spent that year in Europe, it turned out to be the trip of a lifetime for everyone but Howard. The judge enrolled the six-year-old in a private school for French children. It did not go well. Howard didn't speak one bit of French, and he didn't want to learn. He had absolutely no social skills. Howard was small, meek, and timid, pale and thin, almost sickly. And that was true for much of his life. Howard was taunted relentlessly by the other children in France for the entire year, almost daily. Howard was miserable in Europe when his siblings and his parents seemed so content. What was wrong with him, his family wondered. Alice explained to police that Howard, as a boy, was somber-faced, unhappy, and extremely overly sensitive. And as a young adult, he seemed almost unreasonable at times. His reactions were unpredictable. He suspected that he was adopted, that his parents never loved him. And this was confusing to people outside of the family because Will and Lena Pearson were so kind to their children. There didn't seem to be a reason for Howard to be so miserable. The problem seemed deeper than adolescent insecurity. He was so serious about everything. Howard was convinced that he not only could become a great scientist, but that he was the, uh, the son of a great scientist that he never named. But he was convinced that he was the son of a great scientist and not the son of this distinguished judge, and that the judge didn't want him to excel In college, Howard began to express some serious delusions, which appeared to manifest within months. But severe psychological issues might have been developing since childhood, and his parents didn't seem to recognize them. They suspected that he was just having problems fitting in. Bill told police that Howard had refused to make friends growing up, and he had few even now. He stayed locked up in his bedroom for days, only emerging to eat. As a student, he struggled with difficult engineering classes at the University of Texas. He had done moderately well in high school, but college was a bigger challenge, one with obstacles that seemed too large for him to overcome. 
he couldn't keep up. And his classes were not cheap. And that was a big problem. In 1934, after two and a half years at UT, Will Pearson had finally had enough of Howard's inadequacies in the classroom. The judge was already struggling to pay off debt from his successful re-election campaign. He was frustrated as he wrote a check each year for his youngest child's tuition. Judge Pearson wrote to his son, Bill, This morning, I took over your note at the Austin National Bank. I would have paid it off about three weeks ago, but overlooked it, so I had to renew it. I'm beginning now to pay off my debts and, of course, am hoping to pay them rapidly. But it will take some time to get out of debt. Howard's tuition was a drain on the family finances. The country was still not quite through the end of the Great Depression. America's economy was recovering, but its collapse still felt fresh. So Will Pearson made a decision that would forever change his son's life. The judge decided that he wasn't going to finance that education anymore. And so basically he forced Howard to, uh, to drop out of the University of Texas. And that could have been the beginning of Howard's belief that his father was keeping him down. Maybe. But one thing I've learned from researching how crimes affect families is that you never get a clear picture at the beginning of any investigation. And there's a lot more to this family's history. It's really tangled and sometimes confusing. But one thing I am certain of is that Howard was furious about being pulled out of his science classes. Gray Pearson says that Howard was frustrated because the young man believed that he had shown real ambition and passion, despite what his father said. Howard had this, apparently, and I've learned this from another family member, really wanted to be the world's greatest physicist and was furious with his father for taking him out of school. The judge felt that Howard needed to actually get out and learn about the real world. It would sound somewhat logical that the father would think, well, Howard's just getting to be where he's all focused on things of school, but doesn't get it about the street and the real world. And this will help Howard adjust better. I can see that being a response in that era. That makes sense. If things weren't working out at UT, then perhaps a change of focus might have helped the 21-year-old who was struggling to find his way. But Howard wasn't a typical 21-year-old. And the judge's decision was a turning point for all of them. Howard would make a go of it for a while. He wanted to please his demanding parents. He wanted to fit into a family of overachievers. All of this happened in 1934, about a year and a half before the murders. Don't forget that because it becomes more important later on. Howard told the police that his removal from the University of Texas had really confused him. The judge had sent both Bill and Alice to college and had paid their tuition and all their expenses. Why not him? Was he not worthy of the same kind of treatment? Howard was certain that his parents favored his older siblings, especially Bill, and that really upset him. And it caused a lot of tension inside the home. The Pearsons had experienced a deep history of various types of conflicts, just like my family and just like your family might have. This didn't just start with Howard, though his story was the most dramatic. 
There was a conflict between the Pearsons that was much older, from more than 25 years earlier. Apparently, it was a pretty bitter rift. This particular rift and its consequences reverberated through the family for generations. It was a fight that involved Will Pearson and his 10 siblings when they were all much younger. A tug of war over the family business that began in 1909, when the judge's father died. Marshall Pearson had owned a very successful national bank in Haskell, Texas, for almost 20 years. Haskell is in North Texas, a few hundred miles from Fort Worth and Dallas. Marshall Pearson was on his third marriage. Gray Pearson says that he had hired several of his sons from his first marriage to work at his bank. When he died, they assumed that they would be taking over the bank and running it. To their shock, their stepmother, Margaret, said, well, no, I'm going to run the bank. They said, pardon me, you're, you're a woman. What, what are you talking about? And uh, she said, nope, I'm going to run it. And it, it caused a huge rift. There seemed to be no negotiating with her stepsons, no way to heal their fractured relationship. So Maggie Pearson fired them, and she took over the bank. There was just an absolute assumption that a woman would not be running a bank. She was apparently plenty strong. She ran the bank, apparently did so very successfully. The children were furious, and rather than stay in Haskell, they left the state and broke up the family. Most of Will's siblings moved to California, but he stayed in Texas and began his legal career in Austin. So those two sections of the family, the California Pearsons and the Texas Pearsons, which included Gray's family, have never quite come together, even today. Family history really seems to play a big part in their lack of connection. Now, there are reunions that are hosted in either state, but if that rift had not happened, who knows how close the family might have been. So there were tensions in the Pearson family for decades. The feud of the previous generation from back in 1909 didn't seem to affect Howard. But by 1934, at age 19, he had started his own feud with his father. He was upset because Howard thought that Will Pearson was somehow keeping him down. And when asked, well, how's your father keeping you down? Well, he won't pay for me to go to the University of Texas like he did Uh, the older siblings, Bill and Alice. And investigators found more evidence that the judge was ready to make a permanent decision, whether Howard liked it or not. Remember the letters that were found inside the judge's jacket pocket after the bodies were discovered? Gary Laverne says that those letters were very significant to police in 1935, and they were significant to Howard. They were letters of recommendation for jobs, more jobs for Howard. Howard had a a number of jobs, and he had trouble keeping those jobs. And some of the uh, letters that the judge wrote were to friends of his pleading with, um, with his friends to see if they could find a job for Howard. The judge was actually about to mail a couple of these letters the night he was murdered. Police carefully opened them at the station. They were soaked with blood from the judge's body. They scan through the typed text. One of the letters began, Dear Claude, I am taking the liberty of writing you about a matter that is quite personal to me. It started the year before, in 1934, after he had taken Howard out of UT. The judge had promised him that he might be able to return if he proved himself at a real job. 
But now Howard needed to actually find a job. He had no practical skills, no obvious acumen for anything, really. He wasn't fast or nimble or clever. Howard needed help finding a career. And 1934 was a terrible time for an underqualified young man to find work. So Will Pearson wrote to a friend who worked in the legal department at Gulf Petroleum in Houston. He said, My son Howard is very desirous of getting out and working a year or two or longer. He is of excellent character, strictly honest, very sincere, and has good habits. He is five foot eight inches in height, weighs 145 pounds, is stockily built, and is reasonably strong. Howard was not stockily built, and he didn't seem physically strong at all. But the judge was desperate. Some of those letters are really rather pathetic. You have a father who's desperately trying to fix his son up with a job so that he could lead something of a normal life. And in those letters, he's clearly someone who's trying desperately to figure out what to do with Howard. Pearson begged for friends to secure Howard a job as an oil field worker in East Texas. I've visited oil fields there. The technology they have today might make the job easier than it was in 1934, but it's still a lot of hard work. And it was even harder back then. Most people reared in a large city would not choose that job. And let me be clear, Howard did not want to do this. He did not want to leave his comfortable life in Austin. He did not want to leave his classes at UT. He wanted to stay in control of his life, but the judge made that nearly impossible. And the more letters the judge mailed, the more his son panicked. But the judge wasn't easy to argue with when he had made a firm decision. And Howard didn't seem to handle stress well. The judge wrote his eldest son, Bill, in January of 1934 about a trip to the doctor. Will said that Howard seemed distant, even more than usual. Howard was complaining of poor health. The judge was unsympathetic. The clinic found Howard in good condition, he said. There is very little cause for him to feel tired, and Dr. Moon says he will soon be over it. I'm afraid that he's been eating irregularly and perhaps too many sweets. I hope that we can turn over a new leaf this year and that all of us can eat together, especially at noon and night. We ought to, and besides, we enjoy the fellowship. Three months later, Howard was still miserable, and so he did something drastic. As Howard sat in his car in the garage, he thought about his life, about his lack of control. The garage filled with gas, and Howard felt sleepy. This was about a year before the murders. In a March 1934 letter to his daughter, Alice, Will Pearson described what happened next. Howard had an accident Friday afternoon, which could have been serious or fatal. He was overcome by monoxide gas from the car in the garage at home about four o'clock last Friday afternoon. He was unconscious for about three hours. If the motor had not stopped, he would have been killed. Dr. Joe Wooten says there will be no after effects, that he will be perfectly all right, though for two or three weeks, he will be stupid and tired. This incident is one of the first things that Gray Pearson and I talked about. Did you get to see that letter, the very last one of the printout I sent you, the one that describes the fatal incident or the near-fatal incident? Yes, yes. 
Right. So he leaves his car on inside the garage. What it sounds like is a failed suicide attempt. That just doesn't sound like something that would happen as an accident. You know, being in a closed garage with a car running and being overcome by carbon monoxide. Because I work on old cars, and they, they tend to smoke. And having that kind of an, an odor, you'd want to get out in any event. So Howard would have known better. Oh, I, I think definitely. Uh, there would be no question that carbon monoxide would kill you in a closed garage. There's a tendency to assume that we're a lot smarter than they were, but we, we aren't. Uh, they were just in their times. And in 1934, the family physician, Dr. Wooten, agreed. It was definitely a suicide attempt. The following year, Howard's parents were dead. And the doctor told police that he had seen troubling behavior from Howard for several years. Dr. Wooten labeled Howard's condition as dementia precox, a chronic deteriorating psychotic disorder. What's the gist of this? It's a premature dementia that is very rare. Dementia is usually, of course, uh, associated with the elderly. Dr. Wooten, uh, who was a friend of the family and who knew Howard, diagnosed him with that particular malady and said that uh, Howard should be immediately released from jail and sent to the state mental hospital. The condition is no longer referred to as dementia precox. It's now called schizophrenia. And that diagnosis seemed to fit Howard's symptoms. He had been experiencing hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech, and emotional flatness. They seemed to start while he was a teenager, and that's when experts say that people can begin to experience symptoms. Dr. Wooten insisted to Judge Pearson that he commit Howard to an institution immediately. He argued that the boy would never recover without proper care and guidance. Dr. Wooten said that Howard could still have a productive, healthy life if he got help. And the judge replied, he'll grow out of it. Why would they not have gotten him professional help? There was a much larger stigma for that back then than there is today. You know, today we encourage people to go to institutions and to get psychiatric treatment. And back then, uh, the mere mention of that brought about a stigma that we don't have today. I don't think they wanted the Pearson name to be associated with that kind of psychological malady. If they had, maybe they both would have still been alive. Absolutely. I wanted to visit more family members. Over the past two seasons, I've discovered that families often don't talk about dark spots in their history. And when they do, the information they have is sometimes unreliable or conflicting. Oliver Perkins is the Pearson family's keeper of phone numbers and email addresses. He's gathered them from reunions over the years. Gray recommended that he and I meet because Oliver really understands the family tree. Oliver has collected all sorts of information about this case. Some of it's right, and some of it is misinformation that has been passed around for years. What I recall is that Howard said that they were attacked by Indians, not that they were attacked by robbers or bandits or something like this. Looking at all the other published reports, there's no mention of that. Oliver and his wife Janet talk about the judge's decision to force Howard into a difficult, back-breaking job on an oil field. 
Oliver says that the judge probably did make a pretty poor decision, even if it seemed practical at the time. Howard was not suited for that type of work. I wondered if he could have been teased a lot, particularly if he's out there working in the oil fields. I mean, I don't know what the oil fields were like back then, but these days, looking at roughnecks, you know, they might not be real sympathetic to a young person who was small and meek. But Judge Pearson felt Howard needed to develop a strong work ethic. He needed to be woken up from his dream life at the University of Texas. The college seemed to be sheltering Howard. Pearson's decision might have seemed like tough love, but Gray Pearson says that it certainly was love. No, he was was desperately trying to get Howard a job. In June of 1934, all of the judge's efforts finally paid off. He received a positive response from an acquaintance. Howard had a new career. He began working at an oil field in Longview, Texas, less than 50 miles from the Louisiana border. That was roughneck territory in 1934. Howard was hired as a gauger. His job was to confirm oil and gas field production levels. He also maintained the equipment and read and recorded daily numbers from leased oil and gas measurement equipment. And Howard had a lot of responsibility. He wasn't usually moving around heavy equipment or slinging a shovel. But it was still a nasty, hard job for anyone, especially Howard. He was one of the few people in the field who had taken college classes. This was definitely a different crowd than Howard Pearson was used to being around. Howard didn't write home often to his parents. But when he did, he frequently seemed unhappy and customarily stoic. This was about three months after his suicide attempt. Judge Pearson would sign his letters to Howard with phrases like, with very much love to my young son, your father. Howard would write letters that read, dear dad and mother, I received the letter from you today. I am enclosing a letter to Judge Engelking in San Antonio for dad to address. There isn't any news, so I will close. Your son, Howard. There was a certain lack of emotion in all of Howard's communications. That was nothing new. But he was making new strides. Despite his small stature, Howard Pearson managed to not get seriously hurt in an oil field filled with physical dangers for 10 months. And it seemed like he did a pretty good job, even if he didn't like it. He lived with his cousin, Marshall Pearson. A quick side note. There are numerous William Pearsons and several Marshall Pearsons in this family, so their lineage began to confuse me a little bit. This particular Marshall Pearson had three daughters in Corpus Christi, right on the coast, and I'm trying to find them. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. It hasn't been going very well. Back in April 1935, there was a much bigger problem. The oil company in Longview fired Howard after less than a year. Apparently he wasn't fired for incompetence because it said they fired 29 other people at the same time, let them go. He may have viewed that as, well, I'm now out of a job, so I'm sure Dad's going to let me go back to school. But that wasn't the judge's plan. Instead... 
Will Pearson penned more pleading letters to different colleagues. He was desperate to find Howard a new job immediately. All of these frantic letters were a bad idea. Of course, Howard hated the work, but the judge was also walking a very fine line here. It was dangerous. That does strike me as a little bit manipulative, possibly unethical for him to be pushing those people who might have business before the court. He's using his power and authority to try to control a situation. So it seems like the judge could be a bit underhanded if needed. Will Pearson was determined to force Howard into supporting himself for good. During the first week of April in 1935, Will typed notes to several acquaintances at oil companies in Houston. The judge wrote, Howard is very anxious for another job and needs it very bad. And I am anxious to find him one. He likes the oil business and thinks he would like to follow it as a life work. Of course, Will Pearson was lying. Howard didn't want to toil in a hot oil field for the rest of his life. He wanted to be back at the University of Texas studying science. But the judge made it clear that a return to college wasn't in Howard's future. And his unstable son began to resent him. Howard had always been interested in being a physicist, but now he was saying something really strange. First, he insisted that his father was a famous scientist, not the judge. But this new claim was even more startling. Not only was Will not his father, he was actively getting in Howard's way of becoming a huge success. He was preventing Howard from becoming a great scientist who could cure diseases and fix things for mankind. His, his delusions were that profound. The word delusion is something else that comes up a lot in this story. Howard Pearson and his delusions. He could barely make it through a physics class at UT. He had to have realized that being a famous scientist wasn't realistic. But he really didn't seem to know that. Here's the dad, still frustrated, still trying to help Howard, and none of it worked out. And you got the feeling that this was just a lifetime of pain for both the Pearsons. I I think in 1935, having a son like Howard would have been even more frustrating then than it would be today. On April 6, 1935, the judge received some good news from a friend. He had been sending Howard to Houston for meetings with oil executives. Dear Judge Pearson, Howard was in to see me yesterday, and I was able to get him a place with a Yont Lee in the Barbers Hill field. So Will Pearson had forced Howard into another oil field job, this one even further away from Austin and his comfortable life. He was supposed to report to the site in Beaumont immediately. Howard reluctantly packed his suitcase and left which was odd timing because all of this happened just two weeks before the death of his parents. For nine hours, Howard Pearson sat in the police station and insisted that he loved his parents. How can you suspect me? He screamed. You must be crazy but investigators had picked up on something strange. 
Howard often referred to Pearson as the judge, not dad. That didn't seem to be a very warm title for a loving son. And they wondered about an even bigger motive. Police discovered that Will Pearson had a sizable life insurance policy, $17,000. That would be more than $300,000 today. Howard and his two siblings would split the money. Howard's brother, Bill, was certain the youngest Pearson didn't know about the money. But the police weren't so sure. Remember that Howard had carefully described the alleged robbers, the ones he claimed killed his parents, and investigators were still suspicious of the incredible details he had provided. The detectives looked at this young man and said, well, number one, he has an extraordinary recall of the people who did this. I mean, down to the clothes they were wearing, the hair color, the eye color, the build and so forth. But what seemed to bother police the most was Howard's reaction to losing his parents. It was just off. He seemed almost disinterested and distracted. When he first arrived at the police station, he told officers that he had a date that night with a co-ed and he needed to call her to cancel. They thought most people who are being asked for the first time to repeat and describe the murder of their parents, to have no emotion like that was just brought about suspicion. He was very stoic. Their reaction was, he's making this up. But I don't think that's very fair of the police, especially if Howard had a mental condition that might suppress his emotions. And how could anyone judge the way that someone else might react to a tragedy? That happens sometimes in sexual assault cases. Male investigators might assume that a survivor should act in a particular way. And when she doesn't, they might suspect that her story isn't true. But detectives in this case were determined to break Howard and they had real evidence. They curtly informed him that there was a witness who wanted to testify against him, a friend. Investigators also had proof that Howard owned an old 38 caliber pistol, which used the same cartridges found at the scene. They knew where he bought it, and they could prove that it was used to shoot Will and Lena Pearson. While researching my last book, I found that some forensic techniques in the 1930s weren't as rudimentary as you might think. They were actually pretty accurate. Eighty years ago, forensic analysts were able to match the markings on bullets to a murder weapon. And bullet striations are still considered solid evidence in court. In 1935, detectives threatened Howard with their own forensic evidence. We're going to find out what you did. And if you think you're going to get away with this, you're wrong. When police explained how the gun could be traced back to him, Howard knew he was trapped. He looked at the sheriff and said, what do you suppose my friends would think if I confessed to this thing? The sheriff thought about it and replied, they probably would think more of you than if you waited to be trapped. Howard smiled and said, all right then, I'll tell you the truth. I did it. And he finally admitted that he shot himself and that he had, he had killed his parents. 
And it didn't take long for his cover story to get blown. I think they knew they had their murderer almost from the time they started talking to him. It was just too many things that didn't add up. And so the wheels of criminal justice began to grind in the investigation of Howard Pearson and the murder of his parents. Alice and Bill hired several high-powered defense attorneys. The press looked to Howard's brother and sister for answers. How could they defend a man who gunned down their parents? When Howard hugged Alice and Bill in jail, he was stunned by their grief. He actually thought that they would have been pleased with what he did. It was such an odd assumption. He prepared to tell police the entire story, which was even more callous and calculating than investigators had suspected. The district attorney prepared a case against Howard. The crime was clearly premeditated. His motives were money and revenge. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He even tried to cover it up by shooting himself in the arm. And Austin police believed that these well-planned murders warranted life in prison or even the death penalty. The state had already executed six men by April of 1935, with 14 more to go by the end of the year. They were all sent to the electric chair for murder. And Howard Pearson could be next. So you have motive, you have premeditation, you have cover-up, and so all of the elements for capital punishment are there. And I think Bill and Alice thought that was just utterly inconceivable that their brother would be executed for this. It was so hard to believe. How could such a meek and quiet man do something like this? Howard Pearson's attorneys challenged the court to explain it. His defense team recruited Bill, Alice, and several alienists, all to save Howard's life. The Pearsons are a very big family, and many of them don't speak to each other. And when they do speak, it's rarely about Howard Pearson and the family murders. But Gray Pearson has kindly given me a list of people who might know more about this story. Oliver Perkins was incredibly helpful with that, too. So there are these bits and pieces of information floating around from different family members, and not all of it's accurate. But there are some key people who were close to Howard and Alice and Bill. So my job now over the next four episodes is to pull it all together and figure out what happened here. Why did Howard Pearson kill his parents? Where did this violent behavior even come from? Was he a person with mental illness? Would the court consider him legally insane or just devious and greedy? Or might there be a different motive altogether? Anything else you can think of? I think you've pretty well covered, covered the waterfront. Uh, you, you've certainly educa- you've educated me more than I've offered anything to you. Well, I think that must mean I'm heading in the right direction. on the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked. So we have a hard time understanding somebody who acts out of extreme anger or extreme fear and commits homicide. But it's, I think, even harder to understand somebody who's psychotic and does that. And what would that be like? He had to murder his mother, too, because if he murdered only his father, the mother would get the money and not him. So delusional and calculating at the same time. It's one of the most baffling things in all of uh, criminal justice. 
It was planned and deliberate, and it's not like a momentary psychotic break. If you love true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. They're available anywhere you buy books. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Letters in this episode come from William Pearson's collection at the Texas Supreme Court Archives. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.